Book Two, Chapter One, Sections Three and Four of In the Days of the Comet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. In the Days of the Comet by H. G. Wells. Book Two, Chapter One, Sections Three and Four. Everywhere the awakening came with the sunrise. We awakened to the gladness of the morning. We walked dazzled in a light that was joy. Everywhere that was so. It was always morning. It was morning because, until the direct rays of the sun touched it, the changing nitrogen of our atmosphere did not pass into its permanent phase, and the sleepers lay as they had fallen. In its intermediate state, the air hung inert, incapable of producing either revival or stupefaction, no longer green, but not yet changed to the gas that now lives in us. To everyone, I think, came some parallel to the mental states I have already sought to describe. A wonder, an impression of joyful novelty. There was also very commonly a certain confusion of the intelligence, a difficulty in self-recognition. I remember clearly as I sat on my stile that presently I had the clearest doubts of my own identity, and fell into the oddest metaphysical questionings. If this be I, I said, then how is it I am no longer madly seeking Nettie? Nettie is now the remotest thing, and all my wrongs. Why have I suddenly passed out of all that passion? Why does not the thought of Verol quicken my pulses? I was only one of many millions who that morning had the same doubts. I suppose one knows oneself for oneself when one returns from sleep or insensibility by the familiarity of one's bodily sensations. And that morning all our most intimate bodily sensations were changed. The intimate chemical processes of life were changed. It's nervous metaboly for the fluctuating, uncertain, passion-darkened thought and feeling of the old time came steady, full-bodied, wholesome processes. Touch was different. Sight was different. Sound and all the senses were subtler. Had it not been that our thought was steadier and fuller, I believe great multitudes of men would have gone mad. But as it was, we understood. The dominant impression I would convey in this account of the change is one of enormous release, of a vast substantial exaltation. There was an effect, as it were, of light-headedness that was also clear-headedness, and the alteration in one's bodily sensations, instead of producing the mental obfuscation, the loss of identity that was a common mental trouble under former conditions gave simply a new detachment from the tumid passions and entanglements of the personal life. In this story of my bitter, restricted youth that I have been telling you, I have sought constantly to convey the narrowness, the intensity, the confusion, muddle, and dusty heat of the old world. It was quite clear to me within an hour of my awakening 
that all that was in some mysterious way over and done that too was the common experience men stood up they took the new air into their lungs a deep long breath and the past fell from them they could forgive they could disregard they could attempt and it was no new thing no miracle that sets aside the former order of the world it was a change in material conditions a change in the atmosphere that at one bound had released them some of them it had released to death indeed man himself had changed not at all we knew before the change the meanest knew by glowing moments in ourselves and others by histories and music and beautiful things by heroic instances and splendid stories how fine mankind could be how fine almost any human being could upon occasion be but the poison in the air its poverty in all the nobler elements which made such moments rare and remarkable all that has changed the air was changed and the spirit of man that had drowsed and slumbered and dreamt dull and evil things awakened and stood with wonder-clean eyes refreshed looking again on life section four the miracle of the awakening came to me in solitude the laughter and then the tears only after some time did i come upon another man until i heard his voice calling I didn't seem to feel there were any other people in the world all that seemed past with all the stresses that were past I had come out of the individual pit in which my shy egotism had lurked I had overflowed to all humanity I had seemed to be all humanity I had laughed at swindles as I could have laughed at myself and this shout that came to me seemed like the coming of an unexpected thought in my own mind but when it was repeated I answered I am hurt said the voice and I descended into the lane forthwith and so came upon Melmount sitting near the ditch with his back to me some of the incidental sensory impressions of that morning bit so deeply into my mind that I verily believe when at last I face the greater mysteries that lie beyond this life when the things of this life fade from me as the mists of the morning fade before the Sun these irrelevant petty details will be the last to leave me will be the last wisps visible of that attenuating veil I believe for instance I could match the fur upon the collar of his great motoring coat now could paint the dull red tinge of his big cheek with his fair eyelashes just catching the light and showing beyond his hat was off his dome-shaped head with its smooth hair between red and extreme fairness was bent forward in scrutiny of his twisted foot his back seemed enormous and there was something about the mere massive sight of him that filled me with liking what's wrong said i I say he said in his full deliberate tones straining round to see me and showing a profile a well-modeled nose a sensitive clumsy big lip known to every caricaturist in the world 
I'm in a fix. I fell and wrenched my ankle. Where are you? I walked round him and stood looking at his face. I perceived he had his gaiter and sock and boot off. The motor gauntlets had been cast aside, and he was kneading the injured part in an exploratory manner with his thick thumbs. By Jove, I said, you're Melmount. Melmount, he thought. That's my name, he said, without looking up. But it doesn't affect my ankle. We remained silent for a few moments except for a grunt of pain from him. Do you know, I asked, what has happened to things? He seemed to complete his diagnosis. It's not broken, he said. Do you know, I repeated, what has happened to everything? No, he said, looking up at me and curiously for the first time. There's some difference. There's a difference, he smiled. A smile of unexpected pleasantness and an interest was coming into his eyes. I've been a little preoccupied with my own internal sensations. I remark an extraordinary brightness about things. Is that it? That's part of it. And a queer feeling, a clear-headedness. He surveyed me and meditated gravely. I woke up, he said, feeling his way in his memory. And I, I lost my way. I forget quite how. There was a curious green fog. He stared at his foot, remembering. Something to do with a comet. I was by a hedge in the darkness, tried to run. Then I must have pitched into this lane. Look! He pointed with his head. There's a wooden rail, new broken there. I must have stumbled over that out of the field above. He scrutinized this and concluded, yes. It was dark, I said, and a sort of a green gas came out of nothing everywhere that's the last i remember and then you woke up so did i in a state of great bewilderment certainly there's something odd in the air i was i was rushing along a road in a motor car very much excited and preoccupied i got down he held out a triumphant finger ironclads now i've got it we'd strung our fleet from here to Texel. We'd got right across them, and the Elbe mined. We'd lost the Lord Warden. By Jove, yes, the Lord Warden. A battleship that cost two million pounds. And that fool Rigby said it didn't matter. Eleven hundred men went down. I remember now we were sweeping up the North Sea like a net, with the North Atlantic fleet waiting at the Pharaohs for him, and not one of them had three days' coal. Now, was that a dream? No, I told a lot of people as much. A meeting, was it? To reassure them? They were warlike, but extremely frightened. Queer people, paunchy, and bald like gnomes, most of them. Where? Of course. We had it all over, a big dinner. Oysters. Colchester. I'd been there just to show all this raid scare was nonsense. And I was coming back here. But it doesn't seem as though that was recent. I suppose it was. Yes, of course, it was. I got out of my car at the bottom of the rise with the idea of walking along the cliff path, because everyone said one of their battleships was being chased along the shore. That's clear. I heard their guns. He reflected. Queer. I should have forgotten. Did you hear any guns? I said I had heard them. Was it last night? late last night, one or two in the morning. 
He leant back on his hand and looked at me, smiling frankly. Even now, he said, it's odd, but the whole of that seems like a silly dream. Do you think there was a Lord Warden? Do you really believe we sank all that machinery? For fun? It was a dream, and yet it happened. By all the standards of the former time, it would have been remarkable that I talked quite easily and freely with so great a man. Yes, I said, that's it. One feels one has awakened from something more than that green gas, as though the other things also weren't quite real. He knitted his brows and felt the calf of his leg thoughtfully. I made a speech at Colchester, he said. I thought he was going to add something more about that, but there lingered a habit of reticence in the man that held him for the moment. It's a very curious thing, he broke away, that this pain should be on the whole more interesting than disagreeable. You are in pain? My angle is. It's either broken or badly sprained. I think sprained. It's very painful to move, but personally I'm not in pain. That sort of general sickness that comes with local injury. Not a trace of it. He mused and remarked, I was speaking at Colchester, and saying things about the war, I begin to see it better. The reporters scribble, scribble, Max Sustain, 1885, hubbub, compliments about the oysters. Mm, what was it about the war? A war that must needs be long and bloody, taking toll from castle and cottage, taking toll. Rhetorical gusto. Was I drunk last night? His eyebrows puckered. He had drawn up his right knee, his elbow rested thereon, and his chin on his fist. The deep-set gray eyes beneath his thatch of eyebrow stared at unknown things. My God, he murmured, my God, with a note of disgust, he made a big brooding figure in the sunlight. He had an effect of more than physical largeness. He made me feel that it became me to wait upon his thinking. I had never met a man of this sort before. I did not know such men existed. It is a curious thing that I cannot now recall any ideas whatever that I had before the change about the personalities of statesmen. But I doubt if ever in those days I thought of them at all as tangible, individual human beings, conceivably of some intellectual complexity. I believe that my impression was a straightforward blend of caricature and newspaper leader. I certainly had no respect for them. And now, without servility or any insincerity, whatever, as if it were a first fruit of the change, I found myself in the presence of a human being towards whom I perceived myself inferior and subordinate before whom I stood without servility or any insincerity whatever, in an attitude of respect and attention. My inflamed, my rancid egotism, or was it, after all, only the chances of life, had never once permitted that before the change. He emerged from his thoughts, still with a faint perplexity in his manner. That speech I made last night, he said, was damned mischievous nonsense, you know. Nothing can alter that. Nothing. No. Little fat gnomes in evening dress. 
gobbling oysters, gulp. It was a most natural part of the wonder of that morning that he should adopt this incredible note of frankness, and that it should abate nothing from my respect for him. Yes, he said, you are right. It's all indisputable fact, and I can't believe it was anything but a dream. End of Book Two, Chapter One, Sections Three and Four.